When I was a little boy, I would collect baseball cards, and one of my favorites was a picture of Harmon Killebrew. Now, that name probably doesn't mean anything to you because he played way back in the 50s and 60s and a little bit into the 70s, but he was quite a ball player. Over the course of his career, he hit more than 500 home runs, and trust me, these were not home runs that just barely made it over the wall. I mean, to this day, he still holds a record for some of the longest home runs ever hit, especially in places like Baltimore and Detroit. Some of those old stadiums, the home runs on occasion would go clear over the roof and clear out of the ballpark. And this was back in the days when nobody knew anything about steroids. Harmon Kilbrew was a little guy. His baseball card said he's 5 foot 11 inches tall. I don't think he was even close to being that tall. But that guy knew how to hit a baseball. Played in the majors for 22 years, and when he finally retired, it took a long time before others really began to appreciate his achievements. You see, Harmon Killebrew was a quiet guy. He wasn't one to stand in front of the camera and talk about himself, and for most of his career, he played for a losing team, the Washington Senators, who then eventually moved to Minneapolis and became known as the Minnesota Twins. But finally, 1984, it happened. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And here's the whole reason I'm telling you this story. That day there in Cooperstown, New York, as Harmon Killebrew is standing at the podium and giving his acceptance speech, just a short speech, but he spent most of the speech talking about his dad. He said, it was my dad who taught me the game. He spent hours every week out there in the front yard with me and my brothers just patiently teaching us the right way to throw and catch and the right way to hit the ball. So it was my dad who gave me this love for the game. But there was one moment in all those growing up years that stood out from all the rest. Harmon Killebrew says one day we were out there in the front yard again playing another game of baseball when all of a sudden his mom came out in the front porch, obviously irritated and annoyed, and she began to complain, Clayton, that was his dad's name, Harmon Clayton Killebrew. Clayton, you're ruining the yard, you're killing the grass, all this running around, all these silly games of baseball, you're, you're hurting the yard. Why, we've got the worst looking yard in the whole neighborhood. And Harmon Kilbury said, I will never forget what my dad said that day. He was playing catcher at the time. He said, he just very calmly stood up. He looked at my mother with just a look of love in his eyes. And in a gentle tone of voice, he said, Ma, Ma, let's not forget why we're here. We're not here to grow grass. We're here to raise boys. It's easy, isn't it? to lose sight of what really matters. It's so easy to, to forget uh, why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes we get so busy, it becomes easy to lose track of what's essential. Before you know it, the main thing's not the main thing anymore. And that can happen to us as a church. That's why I think this sermon series that we're preaching this summer is so important. What are our values? What do we care about here at New Hope? And why is this such a big deal to us? What do we treasure and hold dear? What do we consider to be important? And are those the same things that really matter in the eyes of God? I mean, are we truly focused on the things that count, that carry weight, that have significance to the Lord himself? Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But notice the first part of that verse. I am the way. What did he mean by that? Was he just stating a fact? Was he just saying, hey, here's a piece of information really important for you to know. You can't get to God without me. You can't get to God without Jesus. And that's true. And that really is important to know. Only Jesus can forgive. Only Jesus can remove the sin from our lives. Only Jesus can make us right with God. 
But I think when Jesus spoke those words, I am the way, he was doing something more. I think he was doing something more than just pointing to our destiny and saying, the only way you can get to heaven was with me. You've got to connect to Jesus. You've got to believe in him. And again, that's true. That's really, really true. But I think he was teaching something more when Jesus said, I am the way. You see, because of Jesus, our lives have changed. Because of this ongoing relationship that we have with Jesus, now we have a new way of doing things, a whole new way of living. It's the Jesus way. And you should see the way of Jesus in the way we talk and the way we treat other people. You should see the way of Jesus in the way we drive a car and the way we shop at a store. You should see the way of Jesus and the way we raise our children or the way we read a book or the way we spend our money. You see, now because of Jesus, everything is different. The way we look at the world, how we think about things. And part of what's supposed to be new in our lives is this commitment that Jesus called us to. He, he, he called us to make a commitment to be a part of his church. You see, when Jesus asked us to follow him, he didn't just call us to believe he also called us to belong. He wants us to be a part of a family, his family, the church. We're not supposed to be following Jesus by ourselves. The Lord intends that we follow him together, that we follow him together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are many, many reasons for that, but let me just mention one. Men, have you ever had this experience? I have. You know, you're, one day you're upstairs, you're standing in the closet, and you're looking for a shirt. And it's not just any kind of shirt. You're looking for a very specific shirt, and yet you can't find it. And because you can't find it, you're getting more and more frustrated. So you call out to your wife for some help. She's downstairs at the time. She's working on something else and say, honey, I, I can't find my shirt. And immediately she knows what you're talking about. I know the shirt you're talking about. I just put it in the closet. You did. Yes, I did. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Just keep looking. So you keep looking, and you're not seeing it. And again, you're getting more and more frustrated. So you say, honey, it's not here. I, I, and, and you hear from down below, yes, it is. I cleaned it just yesterday. Just yesterday, I put it in your closet. You did. Yes, I did. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Keep looking. Well, the conversation goes on like this for another minute or two until finally your wife realizes, my husband's never going to find that shirt by himself. And so she stops what she's working on. She marches upstairs. She walks right into the closet with no hesitation at all and immediately grabs the shirt that was hanging right in front of you the whole time. I hate that. I hate that because this has happened to me several different times. And every time it happens, it's embarrassing because I realize here's something I should have been able to figure out on my own, but I couldn't. I needed somebody else to help me. But every time that happens, I'm reminded of this truth, and it's a truth that's true for everybody here there's some things you're never going to see on your own. There's some things you will never see until somebody else points it out to you. Hasn't that happened to you as a Christian? Haven't there been times or seasons in your life when, when it feels like God has disappeared? You can't see him. You can't hear him. You don't see any evidence that he's at work in your circumstances, and you begin to get discouraged, and then you begin to get scared, and you think, have I lost my connection to the Lord? Or maybe it's a, a season of your life where you're, you're just so busy, so busy trying to raise a family or so busy trying to make a living that it's been a long, long time since you've really felt close to the Lord. And in that busy season of life, your faith just feels flat and dry and empty until one day a brother or sister in Christ comes along and they tell you a story about something that God just recently did in their lives. Or they point out an insight that they just recently discovered in the reading of the Bible. And all of a sudden, you become aware of God again. All of a sudden, your heart comes alive. And you begin to realize, God hasn't disappeared. Why, he's been here the whole time. I just needed somebody else to help me 
see him again. This is why God told us in the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, he said, it's not good for us to be alone. And this is why God told us in the very middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms, that it's always been his intent. It's always been his design to take those who are lonely and to put them in a family. We were created for our community and not just any kind of community. We were created to be a part of a Christian community. And there was no one who appreciated the significance of this truth more than the Apostle Paul. And he gives us an example of how this truth works. Romans chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible, look at this with me. Romans chapter 16, it's the, very, it's the very last chapter in the book. And just before Paul finishes sending this letter off to the church of Rome, here in this last chapter, he'll mention 35 people. Here are 35 people who've made a difference in his life. Here are 35 people who in some way, big or small, have taught him, served with him, encouraged him, helped him see and experience things he never could have experienced on his own. Here are 35 friends he couldn't do without Here were 35 brothers and sisters in Christ who helped Paul to follow Jesus. And the really interesting thing is, as you take your time to work through this chapter, you'll notice how specific Paul is. As he talks about every one of these friends, he'll talk about the different ways in which each one of them brought a blessing to his life. For example, verse 5, he'll talk about this old man named Eponidas and how he was the first convert in the province of Asia. He was the first person in that part of the world to begin to follow Jesus. And the implication is because he began to follow Jesus, now many other people are beginning to follow Jesus too. Or you come down to verse 7, he'll talk about Andronicus and Junia, how they even became Christians before Paul did, and how at one time they were in prison with Paul because they were all suffering because of their faith, and how these two are held in high regard by all the apostles. Or you come back to verse 3, and he'll talk about Aquila and Priscilla, another married couple, and how they risked their necks, literally laid their lives in the line, not just for Paul, but for so many others in the church. And on and on he goes. With every person, he mentions them by name, and then he'll point out the different reasons why each Christian brother and sister is so special to him. And as you're reading through this, you're being reminded of this truth. We all have limitations. (laughs) I can't. I can't write music. I can't play music. Not even close to it. But boy, do I get inspired and moved when I hear somebody take a beautiful piece of music and play it really well. Here is somebody enriching my life because they can do something for me that I couldn't do for myself. I can't paint. I'm not an artist. In fact, I got a D minus in art class. It's the lowest grade I ever got in school. I don't have a creative bone in my body. You can talk to my wife. I even have trouble trying to paint the bathroom door. But some people know how to draw. They know how to create a picture and put it on a canvas in a way that can literally move you to tears. See, other people do not have the same limitations that I do. So when they take what they're good at and they share it with me, my life is blessed. And that's what we're being taught here in Romans 16. The church is God's family album. Each member of the church is a unique snapshot of what God is like. Here's what God looks like when he's working in the life of a child. And here's what God looks like when he's working through the life of an old man. Here's what God looks like when he's working through the life of a teacher. And here's what God looks like when he's working through the life of a carpenter. No one picture tells the whole story. To get the full picture, you've got to take each one of those individual snapshots and put them together in a family album, which is exactly what God does when he brings us together as a church. So let me give you two examples of how this works. Here are two people who helped the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 22 here in Romans chapter 16. Here's one of them, this fellow named Tertius. He says, I, Tertius, the one who wrote this letter, 
The Apostle Paul's been sending his greetings to all of you there in the Church of Rome throughout this chapter. I, I wanted to be sure to personally send my greetings too. Well, immediately as I read this verse, I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking to myself, I thought the Apostle Paul was the one who wrote the book of Romans. He did. But like so many of the other books that Paul wrote, he used a secretary, a highly skilled secretary. He dictated. They wrote so that the writing could be neat and legible, so that when that letter reached its destination, the words would be easy to see and easy to read. Because that was no small task in the first century. When you're writing on papyrus, not paper, and you didn't have the kind of ink and pens that you could buy at the office depot like we do today, they didn't have that kind of luxury. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered more than 14,000 private letters dating back to the early days of the Roman Empire. And as you examine all of those letters, about the average length of a letter back in that day and time was 87 words. That's a little bit shorter than the book of Philemon. They weren't long, and they weren't long for a reason. They weren't long because it took so long with that kind of writing material. It took so long to write them out. And number two, it was expensive. To have a letter this long like the Book of Romans was extremely rare in the first century. A book like this would have cost about $2,400, which in the first century was a huge sum of money, money that the Apostle Paul did not have. So who funded this project? Come back to verses 1 and 2, Romans chapter 16. Paul talks about another person that's really been helpful to him. He says, I want to commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a servant in the church of Sincrea. Sincrea is a, a little town way over here in the land of Greece. It's not far from the big city of Corinth. And Corinth is the place where Paul's been ministering for a number of years. This is the place where he's now writing this letter to, to Rome. So as he's there through the years, he's come to know Phoebe. And notice what he says about this lady. He says, I ask you, he's talking to the people in Rome, to receive her. Obviously, Phoebe's getting ready to take a trip all the way from Greece to Italy and up to Rome. I ask you when she gets there, receive her in the Lord in a way that's worthy of God's people. Make her feel really welcome. And here's how you do that. Give her any help that she may need from you. And here's why. Because Phoebe's been the kind of lady who through the years has always been helping others. It says Phoebe has been the benefactor of many people, and Paul says, including me. Benefactor means she's a woman of wealth. Lots of resources. She's obviously been successful in the world of business. But through the years, she's always used that wealth for others. So it's a pretty logical guess to say Phoebe's probably the one who provided the funds so this book could be put together. And because of what he said in the first part of the verse, Phoebe's probably the one who actually delivered the letter to the city of Rome. And again, back in the first century, that was no small task. Travel was difficult. You couldn't travel in that part of the world. You couldn't travel during the winter months because the weather was just too bad and too dangerous. So the few months you had to go all the way by ship from Greece to Italy and then take that long hike up to the city of Rome, you're talking about four to six weeks under good conditions. Not an easy trip. You see, here are two people, Phoebe and Tertius, who are putting themselves out in a major way so they can help Paul write the letter and make sure the letter gets delivered to the people who need to read it. But guess what? That's been God's plan all the way along. God never intended that we serve him by ourselves. God wants us to serve him together as a church. Way back in the third century, there was a deacon in the church at Rome. His name was Larry. Now, I call him Larry. If you're big into history and you want to check this out for yourself, that's great. You can go back to the original sources. You can read the writings of Ambrose and Augustine. They're the ones who talk about this guy. And when they talk about him, they call him Lawrence. But if he were hanging out with us today, we'd probably call him Larry, okay? Just so you know where I'm coming from. So here's Larry. He's a deacon in the church at Rome. And one of the reasons he was called to be a deacon is because he's good with money. 
His expertise was in the area of finance, so they designated Larry to be the church treasurer. Well, Larry's living in a dangerous time. The emperor at that time is a guy by the name of Valerian, and he hates Christians. He's persecuting the church. He's in the process of killing some of them. And when Valerian learns about Larry and how he handles all the money for the church, Valerian's thinking to himself, hey, here's another opportunity to dispose of a Christian and get some money for myself. So one day, Larry is summoned to appear before Caesar in Caesar's palace, and he stands there that day before the emperor, and the emperor commands him to take all the treasures of the church and hand it over to the Roman government. And Larry surprises everybody. He's not intimidated at all, stands there with a big smile on his face. He said, I, I'm more than happy to comply. It's just I need some time to gather up all those treasures. Well, this kind of catches Valerian off guard because Valerian's thinking to himself, hey, doesn't this guy understand what I'm about to do to him? And, man, if he needs time, I, he needs time to gather up all the treasures. That church must have more money than what I thought. Hey, this could really work out well for me. So Valerian basically says, take all the time you want. And Larry says, I just need three days. Three days and I'll be back. Three days later. Larry comes back just like he said he would. But as he comes walking into the palace that day, he doesn't have a bit of money in his hands. See, over the past three days, he's very carefully taken all the, the money the church had and given it away to the poor and the sick. But that day, as he comes marching into the palace, he comes in with a bunch of people, orphans, widows, all kinds of other people. And the one thing that all these people have in common is this. They're all members of the church at Rome. And so Larry stands there proudly that day and says, Emperor, here's the treasures of the church. I know you were expecting me to bring some money, but you got to understand something. In the church, money, it's just a means to an end. It's the means by which we help people like this. Valerian, you got to understand, this, this is what God treasures, people. So in the church, we want to treasure them too. Well, we want that to be our testimony here at New Hope. Listen, I know we're not perfect. We've got a lot of changes still to make, a lot of growing to do. But one of the things that we've always tried to put a value on, and we want to continue to put a value on, people. Because we believe every member, every person in this church, you are one of God's treasures. What does that mean? You're not here by accident. We really believe God sent you here. Now, whether you're here a short time or a long time, that's between you and the Lord. But while you're here, God has a purpose for your life. Part of that purpose, part of the reason why he brought you here is so you can use every other member of the New Hope family to help you grow in your faith, to help enlarge your understanding of Jesus, to help expand your experience of his love for you. And then the other part of his purpose is this. He brought you here because you are one of the church's treasures, meaning you have something special and unique to share with others. So God fully expects that while you're here, short time or long time, he wants you to get plugged in. He wants you to be involved. He wants you to take those talents that he's given to you and share them with us so you can help the rest of us follow Jesus too. Let's pray. God, you have called us. You have called us to follow Jesus. And you have called us to be a part of his church. We are grateful for that. God, what a blessing to know that we have been adopted into your family. And Lord, we never want to take that blessing for granted. So God, my prayer today is this. May your Holy Spirit help every one of us here learn how to love one another and learn how to love one another in the same way that Jesus loved us. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.